No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring too much. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hotmeyer. And this is No Gray Zone Podcast. We hope you enjoyed last week's episode. Today, we're going to explore a teen dating violence case study, the State v. Marcus Shipman. This is a tragic case that Melissa prosecuted several years ago. It highlights something we've discussed over the last few weeks, and there were warning signs we need to look out for. And the fact that just recognizing that teen dating violence can end tragically. Catherine, I know you know that each and every case that we handle in the you know, sexual assault domestic violence unit is really difficult. We have really tough cases. These cases involve abuse, sexual assault, exploitation, but there are always cases that stick with you. And this is one of those. Nicole Hines was 17 years old when she was executed by Marcus Shipman, her on and off again boyfriend and the father of her very young son. Shipman was 24 years old when he murdered Nicole. So there was already a pretty significant age difference when we're talking about how old and how mature what Lacole was at the time she got involved with Marcus Shipman. She became pregnant by Marcus Shipman when she was just 15 or 16. Isn't that right, Melissa? Yeah, you're right. Um, And her father, forever her advocate, even at her uh, homicide trial, had tried to get Shipman arrested for statutory rape because the relationship had started before Nicole turned 16. 16 is the is the age of consent in Maryland, but Nicole just wouldn't cooperate. And it kind of became a source of contention with her family because she thought she loved Marcus. And I think because she was afraid of him. And so by the time she turned 16, even though she was a minor, she was able to consent and no charges were ever brought. You know, I think that's so tragic. We see that in so many of our cases where, you know, the parents do see some warning signs or they try to separate or end the relationship and it just doesn't happen. And teenagers can be stubborn and sometimes it causes them to dig their heels in a little more. But, you know, I think you're right. All the facts show that LaCole was afraid of him. The relationship showed signs of power and control. We know he was older. We know that he spent time working on isolating her by turning her against her family that was trying to protect her. And then, you you know, you add the baby into the mix. It's such a young age for LaCole. Yeah, it was not a good combination, but I will tell you from everything, from everyone I spoke to, how much LaCole loved her son. And she soon realized after having the baby that her relationship with Marcus Shipman was not going to get better. And by the time that this murder happened, Marcus Shipman had actually moved on to a new girlfriend, Shakita, who he was also abusing. In fact, I remember about two weeks before the murder, we, we got assault charges against Marcus Shipman for abusing Shakita. 
Um, and he actually, in fact, at the time of the murder, had an open warrant for that domestic assault. You know, that's unfortunately something we see quite often, too, is the fact that domestic violence, intimate partner violence continues. And Melissa, I can't even count. Can you how many cases where we have an open warrant at the time of a homicide? Nope. So at the time of LaCole's murder, he and he being Shipman and LaCole had broken up, but were they still interacting or communicating with each other? Yeah, they were. They were kind of tied together because of their son. And it's really what led to her death. Uh, LaCole had let Marcus Shipman take her son around the 4th of July, and he was refusing to bring him back. And that day, the day of her murder, he promised that he would. He promised that um, he would bring her son back. We had several witnesses testify about it at trial, um, conversations that they heard, overheard between LaCole and Marcus Shipman that day. And what everyone said was that she didn't want to meet him, but if she thought that she was going to be able to get her son back, she would have met him anywhere in the world. And I absolutely understand that. Never underestimate the power of a mother's love. And I guess that's what just makes this just so heartbreaking. Here's a mom just trying to get her child back and it made her vulnerable. Actually, I should say Marcus Shipman made her vulnerable. He knew how to use that power and control dynamic and he used the son. So when we look back at this case, there were actually two incidents that day. Right. The first, the time the guy driving shipment, Brandon Bowers, drove away. What can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Brandon Bowers was a really close friend of Marcus Shipman. Um, and he ultimately testified for the state. And he testified that, you know, he brought her over, that, that the baby was never with Marcus Shipman, and that he ultimately drove away before Marcus could get out of the car because he knew something bad was going to happen and he didn't want to be a part of it. So he left before Shipman could do anything. But let me tell you, that does not make Brandon Bowers the hero of the story because he did bring Marcus Shipman to the ammunition store where he brought that ammunition that ultimately killed LaCole. And instead of, you know, because he didn't want to be a part of it, he found someone else to bring Marcus Shipman back over to Maryland. Um, He was living in D.C. at the time to meet up with LaCole again. You know, it's really hard to say you didn't want to be a part of it when Your own testimony is you knew something bad was going to happen, but hey, let me take him to the ammunition store anyway. And if I remember correctly, wasn't he actually going to pick Marcus Shipman up after the crime? Yeah, he he testified and the cell phone evidence at trial showed that Marcus Shipman called Brandon several times after the murder. Once the driver, who was a 16-year-old, crashed the car after the murder and he they didn't have a way to get away. And so Shipman asked Brandon to pick him up and he testified that he was going to go do it. Uh, but luckily, security guards and then the police were able to apprehend both Danica Lindsay and Marcus Shipman pretty close to the crime scene. Marcus Shipman certainly seemed to know how to control teenagers to get what he wanted one way or another. But, you know, we're actually getting ahead of ourselves because our our story with Brandon actually started with he brought her there, but then left before anything actually happened, before they went to the ammunition store. But what actually happened when Brandon got Shipman to LaCole's residence that first time? So like I said, Brandon didn't let him get him out of the car and he drives away. And of course, LaCole is distraught. She thinks her son is in the car. She shortly after they leave, gets a call from Marcus Shipman saying, you know, I'm going to bring back your son. And even though that first encounter was pretty hostile, she agrees to meet with him at a local liquor store a few blocks away from where she was living at the time. But what we know and what the facts showed is that Shipman never had any intention of returning her son to her. None. In fact, at the time of the murder, their son was with Shakita, 
Shipman's new girlfriend. And she testified that she had had the baby all day. And of course, LaCole didn't know that. So LaCole walks over to the local liquor store to meet up with Marcus Shipman. And this is the same Shakita that he had an open warrant for assaulting. That's the same one who had the child. That's the same one. So when LaCole gets to the liquor store, what happens next is actually on film, right? Yeah, um, it, it was. it's a pretty horrifying uh, surveillance footage. Um, you see LaCole and her two friends walk into the store. Um, LaCole is the last one to walk in, or she doesn't actually make her make it all the way into the store. And as they're starting to walk in, you see a four-door champagne sedan pull up and a masked man get out of the car, walk up directly behind LaCole and shoot her in the back of the head, and you see her fall. And then you see that masked man get back into that champagne car and the car drive away. And that's when Danica Lindsay, who testified later at trial, said that he saw Marcus Shipman coming back with the gun in his hand, that he fled, lost control of the vehicle. Um, and that's when it crashed a short distance away and they ran um, on foot to try to get away from the liquor store. I can certainly see why you qualified this case as the execution of LaCole with those facts. I mean, this this wasn't a surprise or who done it, right? I mean, with the initial 911 call, Shipman is actually the one named as the gunman, right? Everybody knew. The her friends are the one who called 911 and they told 911 operators that Lacole had been shot by by her baby's father. And luckily, there were some really fast-thinking security officers who didn't know that a murder had just happened, but they saw these two young guys running without shirts on. Um out of breath, looking over their shoulders, and they kind of stopped them. And they were met shortly thereafter by police who said they matched the description of the, of the kid, of the people they were looking for. And they had gotten rid of the gun and dropped and gotten rid of their shirts. But once Danico Lindsay was in custody, he cooperated with law enforcement. Like I said before, he led detectives back. They were able to recover the shirts that they were both wearing. And more importantly, they were able to recover the gun. Well, that's certainly helpful, assuming, of course, it's the same gun. And it was. Forensic, we were able to send it to our our lab, and the forensics matched the bullet that was recovered from LaCole's autopsy to the gun. And the shirt that was found next to the gun had Marcus Shipman's DNA on it. So I I just want to make sure I have the evidence correct. Long-term history of domestic violence between Marcus Shipman and LaCole. He was keeping their son when he was not supposed to have him. He had arranged where LaCole should be going that night. Car pulls up. He gets out, although masked, but shoots LaCole in the back of the head. It's caught on film. Her friends are immediately able to tell police who it was who was the shooter. You have the driver of the vehicle is the one who actually takes the detectives back to, hey, here's the gun. Here's our shirts. And the gun actually has Shipman's DNA. So with all of that evidence, how was this case still a trial? Yeah, um, well, he did not want to accept responsibility for her murder. So it was, it was a trial. We presented all that evidence to the jury. And ultimately, after only a few hours, the jury returned the verdict of guilty of first degree murder. Did he present any defense? Did he try to say it was hot-blooded, it wasn't premeditated, or did he just stick with, wasn't me? It wasn't me. It was a robbery gone wrong, is what the defense was. And clearly the jury didn't buy that, and so they found him guilty of first-degree murder. But what was he sentenced to? 
So Marcus Shipman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. You know, this murder was an execution. He certainly deserved that sentence regardless of his background, but Marcus Shipman was a bad guy before he murdered LaCole. Uh, he had multiple contacts and convictions, and he was the suspect of several murders in D.C. before he executed LaCole. So, you know, I believe it was a just sentence if you can have a just sentence for a murder because her son lost both of their parents and LaCole's parents lost their child. I think that's something when you said whatever the just sentence is for a murder, because I think so often people think that when you walk out of the courtroom and you get a life sentence or life without parole and a homicide, that it's a win, that it's a victory, and that as prosecutors, we're happy. And I think you nailed it because there's never any justice when you walk out of the courtroom, especially in a case like this. Somebody who should never have lost their life in such a tragic manner died. And no sentence that we get, no conviction that the jury hands down is ever going to be the actual justice for that kind of case. In this case, as you stated at the very beginning, was a tragic case. It was absolutely an execution. And there were warning signs. And I know that as long as I've known you, Melissa, that you've probably wondered what could be done to prevent it. What if he'd been picked up on that arrest warrant with Shakita? I know that dad probably goes to sleep every single night thinking about what else could he have done to try to get LaCole away from Marcus Shipman or get Marcus Shipman locked up beforehand. And I think that's why this case has stuck with me over the years, because I, I really do think that our system failed LaCole. You know, ultimately we were able to get her justice in, in some fashion. And I certainly think that Marcus Shipman is where he's supposed to be. But, you know, I think that our, our system failed her. She was a child and, you know, we didn't do enough. She was in, in, in a very violent relationship and I just don't know that we did enough. And so that's why I think we started this podcast because we just really want to be advocates for change, changes in the law, changes to better education, because we can do better and we should do better. And that's ultimately why, you know, as we discussed at the end of January, why we have these domestic violence fatality review teams. Although, unfortunately, we did not save LaCole with each case and review. Hopefully we will find something we miss, something we can do better than next time so that we can prevent a homicide. That's all the time we have. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social media. No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter and No Gray Zone on Facebook. And please tune in when we start our March series in honor of Women's History Month. We are going to be focusing on some really powerful and exciting women that are fighting for changes in the law, fighting for victims of sexual exploitation, domestic violence, and child abuse. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to teen dating violence. Thank you for listening. This has been a No Gray Zone podcast. I'm just good at caring too much I'm just good at caring too much You